Hello, and welcome to the weekly podcast of C2 Church in Columbia, Missouri. Well, welcome to C2. I'm Pastor Jeremy. I'm glad to be with you and starting a new series called String of Light. Are you familiar with Christmas lights like this? Yeah. These ones are battery-powered. How awesome is that? And I just got to figure out how to use them. Be smarter than the lights. I love looking at Christmas lights. How many of you love to, like, just travel around the city looking at Christmas lights, right? You like doing that? Spend hours driving around the city? You rent a limo, (laughs) right? (laughs) You can take a taxi. Taxi Terry's with us this morning. We appreciate it. That's right. You should offer, like, some sort of light tour of Columbia. You know, maybe you could even go out to Harg. That's a city around here. I'm just kidding. Never mind. But I love the Christmas lights. I like looking at Christmas lights. Um, I'm not a big fan of hanging Christmas lights. Big difference. Big difference. Because I put them away nice and neat, nicely wrapped and ready to go for the next year. And they come out like this. How? How does it happen? Is it like Toy Story where the lights come alive, they tangle themselves up and just laugh at me, waiting for me to open them up months later? I don't know. I feel like that because I put them away. I I feel like I put them away fairly neat, but they always come out tangled. I I don't like hanging Christmas lights. It's just not a a thing I do. In fact, one year we bought a pre-lit Christmas tree. How many of you have got pre-lit Christmas trees, right, the fake ones that come with the lights on it? And so year two, I was all excited. We pulled it out. The lights didn't work. So now that Christmas tree laughs at me as I wrap it in lights. <laughs> like, and it went out in stages, too. Like the bottom worked. I plugged in. I was like, yes. I put the next section on, plugged it in, nothing. So like, n- you can't, like, have half a lit tree. I mean, I kind of wanted a half a lit tree. I'm like, it's good enough, Dars. Everybody will love it. That's unique. <laughs> but, no, you can't do that. Uh, to me, lights are disposable. Like, you should just throw them away at the end of the year because chances are they're not going to work next year anyway, right? So here's, here's what I proposed to my wife. She's not a big fan. I said, when the year is done, We'll just take the real tree that we decorated this year, and we'll just throw the whole thing out. We'll take the ornaments off, but leave the lights, and just throw the whole thing out. Don't even worry about taking the lights off, right? Because I think you'd just save time that way. They, don't, they shouldn't sell lights in lo- strands of, you know, you can get a strand of 300 lights. Don't. <laughs> they should only sell them in strands of 50, because if one goes out and the whole thing doesn't work, it's easier to count 50 lights than 300 lights. But inevitably, when you find that one light that you think doesn't work and it's causing the whole thing to go out, it's the fuse that doesn't work. <laughs> I hate you Christmas lights. <laughs> so we hung these Christmas lights this week. It was kind of the bane of our existence this week, trying to get these things hung and lit. We got a bunch of strands up, plugged them in, and poof, they didn't work. <laughs> and so we found that the fuse didn't work. But we had to go through how many strands, I don't know, like three strands to figure out which one doesn't work. How many of you hate Christmas lights now, now that I've just told you all about, right? Sometimes it's hard to unravel Christmas lights, and in our, in our series, String of Light, I think sometimes we can look at Scripture like a tangled up ball of light. 
Yeah, somewhere in here it all makes sense and it could, it could, you could unravel it, but does it all make sense? Can we unravel the string of light that's found throughout the whole of Scripture? If you take time to carefully examine Scripture, you'll find it. You'll find that string of light that stretches from the beginning to the end that ties it all together. So I hope over the next few weeks we'll be able to unravel the string of, lights to, a string of light together as we look at Scripture and the Christmas story. You see, the, the use of light as an image of God is used throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament as well. It usually represents hope and life or God himself or his glory. So where does this string of light begin? Most people look at the Christmas story, and that's where the redemption hope story, the string of light, begins. Or you could say that the light of the gospel starts from the beginning of the scripture and stretches all the way to the Christmas story and beyond. And that's sort of the thought that I want to unpack this week and into the following weeks, is this main thought. The goal of Christmas is Easter. It always has been. The goal of Christmas is Easter. Through all of time and space, we get to Christmas, but Christmas' only purpose is to set up Easter. In fact, in Scripture, we're commanded to celebrate Christ's death, not his birth. But we do, and it's a good time of season to do that. But the goal of Christmas is Easter. Look at what John, the gospel writer, writes in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9 goes on to say, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. John goes on to say in verse 10, he was in the world, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor human decision, or father's will, husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Most the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they start their Christmas story with the birth of Christ, the unfolding of his lineage and the shepherds and the, the wise men the journey to Bethlehem. But John writes his Christmas story a little bit differently. And it's here that we can trace the string of light of the gospel back to the beginning. John's version of the Christmas story is that Jesus was introduced to us in this moment, but it's not where he began. He takes us back to the beginning. John loves the image of light. If you read through his gospel and later in the New Testament, you read his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He likes the imagery of light, and he uses it 
often. But here in this moment, he refers to Jesus not only as the light, but he refers to him as the Word, capital W, Logos. This is the name of Jesus. When he says the Word, he's referring to Jesus. This Word of God was existent at the beginning of time. He's saying Jesus was there at the beginning. When everything started, he was there. In fact, John goes on to say that through Jesus, everything that has been made was made through him. He then emphasizes that the light was coming into the world again. As light once was in the beginning, so it will be again. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But his proclamation of the Christmas story is that a spiritual light would be coming into a spiritually dark world, referring to Jesus God was making a way for light to come into darkness. The string of light of redemption was evident at the beginning. John says, in the beginning was the Word. He was with God in the beginning. And He was the light of all mankind. John says the Christmas story not only extends forward from from what we traditionally think as the beginning, the Christmas story, but extends all the way to time before. You see, the hope found in Jesus is that powerful. That though Jesus is written into the story sort of midway, the effects stretch all the way back to time past as well as time forward. Even though we see his physical existence come at this moment. The redemption story starts in the beginning. Remember, the goal of Christmas is what? Easter, the string of light throughout the Old Testament and into the birth of Christ, it all points towards Easter. It all points to the cross. Every string of light that you read, every story of redemption, every thought of hope throughout the whole of the Old Testament, all point to the cross. Every one of them point to Jesus. It's the longing that we all have. It's that which all the prophets spoke of. The long-awaited Messiah would come. He would redeem his people. This was the hope of redemption seen throughout the Old Testament, which string of light we can follow. But it always leads to the cross. Throughout all of time, this is the redemption story, and you have to grasp this. If you're to grasp and unravel the light, the string of light throughout the whole of the Scripture, you have to understand the purpose of it, that it's not separate stories, that the New Testament sort of stands separate from the Old Testament. No, you have to understand the redemption story found throughout all of this, that throughout all of time and history, God's plan was to redeem for himself a people that would be his very own. Starting with Adam and Eve. Noah. Abraham. Moses. All the way through the whole of the Old Testament is the story of God redeeming for himself a people that would be his very own. A people that, chosen by grace, would represent him to the rest of the world, the nations of the world. That's the purpose of all of Scripture. 
I want that to be the filter by which, as you read the Old Testament, you begin to filter it through that redemptive story. How was God at work in this? What was God doing in this scripture, in this story? And it becomes the context at which we begin to filter everything, is that God was at work redeeming for himself a people that would be his very own. You see this word, to redeem, it finds its context in the social, legal, and religious customs of the ancient world. The metaphor of redemption in Scripture includes the the loosing of bonds or chains, the setting free from captivity or slavery, a buying back of something that was lost or sold or exchanging something in one's possession for something possessed by another. In the Old Testament, redemption involves deliverance from bondage based on the payment of a price by a redeemer. Again, throughout the Old Testament, you will find these redemption stories. These Old Testament stories are but a foreshadowing in, in history of the great act of deliverance by which history would be brought to an end. In, rabbi, in rabbinic expectation, I can speak. In rabbinic expectation, the Messiah would be the Redeemer of all of Israel. And the great day of the Lord would be the day of redemption. For those who believe, the Christmas story is an extension of that expectation or the fulfillment of that expectation. Because the goal of Christmas is Easter. There would be a moment of redemption. See, fundamental to the message of the New Testament is the announcement that Jesus of of Nazareth is the fulfillment of Israel's messianic hope written about throughout the Old Testament. And then him, the long-awaited redemption has arrived. This is the proclamation that we see in the Gospels. We see the deliverance of humankind from its state of alienation from God and has been accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, redemption required a payment of a price, but the plight of humanity requires such a ransom that is not moral, is moral rather, not material. It had to be a spiritual ransom. There, had to, there needed to be something that took place in the spiritual, not just the physical. Where the sacrificial system in the ancient days of Israel provided for the people a physical expression of sacrifice, something greater must come to fulfill the moral obligation of the law and the sacrificial system. And that was Jesus. This is the great rescue mission, the greatest rescue story ever told of all time. Humankind held in captivity of sin from which, from which only the atoning death of Jesus Christ could liberate. Galatians, written by Paul the Apostle, Galatians chapter 4, says it this way. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul also writes it this way. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Theologian R. David Reitmeyer says it this way, The central theme of redemption in Scripture is that God has taken the initiative to act compassionately on behalf of those who are powerless to help themselves. 
The New Testament makes clear that divine redemption includes God's identification with humanity in its plight and the securing of liberation of humankind through the obedience, suffering, death, and resurrection of the incarnate Son. Since the only one who could meet the righteous requirements of God's law was God himself, God wrote himself into the story to fulfill that law. Since the only person who could pay the eternal penalty caused by our sin was God himself, God sent himself in the form of Jesus to pay the penalty that you and I could not pay. I think this is a good way to understand the Trinity. While I won't take time this morning to unpack the thought of the Trinity, God as Father, God as Son, God revealed in the Holy Spirit. I think for, I'm a literary guy, I like these types of things, but if you could see God as the author, writing into time and space everything from light to humanity's existence, and in that, he writes himself into the story to become the central character, rescuing those who could not rescue themselves. He writes himself in the flesh. Jesus becomes God with skin on. Let's read again from John 1 where he writes, He was in the world, Jesus, and though the world was made through him, they did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but we did not receive him. But here's the string of light of redemption and hope. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children not born of natural descent, human decision or husband's will, but born of God. And listen, the word became flesh. The written word of God became flesh, fulfilled in flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the name of Jesus, the Word. The Word of God is Jesus. He was there at the beginning. He is now inserted into the perfect moment in time to fulfill the law. God became flesh through Jesus. In Christendom, we use the words incarnate. God becomes Flesh. God comes to humanity. We call Jesus by this name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a Christian distinctive. You need to understand this. This is, this is foundational to Christian belief. That our God came down to be one of us. No religion in all of the world, throughout all of history, has had a God that came from his position to our position. There is no God who came from his authority, giving that up to become humanity. There is no God that by his, of his own action made a way for humans to get to him. You'll find plenty of religions that say, well, if you work hard enough, you might get to God. If you can figure out a way, and if you live good enough, and if Allah wills it, and if by chance, you might be able to get to God, but Christianity says God gave up part of himself to become us. Paul the Apostle writes it well in Philippians 2. 
when he talks about Jesus, though being in very nature God. So Jesus is God. He's in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to, but he made himself into a servant, humbling himself to becoming human, humbling himself to the point of death for the string of light of redemption would come through him. He came from God. This is what John writes in chapter 1. He came from God. Understand, this isn't a location. Now, I know the song goes, He came from heaven to earth to show the way from the cross. Right? You know that song, maybe? Now it'll be in your head all day long, and you won't be able to get it out. See, it's not just a location that Jesus came from God's location to our location. When Jesus came from the Father, what John is writing is similar to what he writes in John 3.16. Many of you might be familiar with that scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Some translations say one and only son. So there's a singular possessive nature there. But I like the translation that's more correct that says his only begotten. We don't use that word a lot in everyday language. We don't use the word begotten. Like when I introduce my kids, I don't say, and this is Maddie begotten of Jeremy and Darcy, and this is Robbie. Be-. You know, I don't, we don't use that word begotten very much. But it not, it not only has a relationship term, but what it means is that Jesus was in the very essence, in his DNA, in his character, he was God. This is why when Jesus said of himself, if you see me, you see the Father, which was blasphemy. He was equating himself on the same level as God himself, and the religious ruling class of the Jews were like, whoa, 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 back that train up. You can't claim to be on the same level as God, yet that's what Jesus did. He said, if you see me, you see the Father. Jesus was in his very essence, in his DNA, not one molecule difference. He was the same as God. And he gives us the opportunity to enter into the redemptive story through Jesus. We have that that invitation. John 3.16 goes on to verse 17. Perhaps you're not as familiar with that. Verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but would have eternal life. But I think sometimes we forget verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Don't forget that Jesus didn't come for your condemnation. He came for your salvation. This is the redemptive story. That God, in his very essence, wrote himself into the story to rescue us. That was the only way. From the beginning of time, this was the plan. It wasn't an afterthought. It was the forethought of God. So where does your redemption story begin? You ever ask yourself that? Where my redemption story begins? For many of you, it's a moment, right? Perhaps it was a summer camp, or maybe it was uh, a, a, a response to a preacher. 
and he called you forward or raised your hand or, you know, batted an eyelash or, uh, you know, nodded your head or, wing, you know, whatever. But you responded some way. And in that moment, that was your moment of redemption. Maybe you've never taken that step. Maybe you've never trusted your life to Christ and invited him in, him in to lead your life. Maybe today is your redemption moment. But I would argue that our redemption moment, though it may seem like a moment to us, was all part of the string of light that God had planned from the very beginning. That before you were born, there was a plan. Not only for salvation for humanity, but for salvation for you. I know sometimes when we read, for God so loved the world, we think of seven billion people currently living on the face of this planet and all the billions of people who have lived before. And we think, yeah, God loves me generally, right? As one of the litter. But God loves you specifically. He knows your name. He knows how many hairs are on your head. As few as those might be. <laughs> he knows you. He loves you specifically. Your string of light, your redemption story started long before you were born. And the moment you were born, the plan was enacted to draw you into relationship to God through Jesus. And so the moment you decided by your, of your own free will to give your life to Christ, there was a great celebration. Why? There was anticipation for the moment you and I would respond. And all the angels watching all the strings of light pointing to the cross, that moment that we might take upon ourselves the identity of Christ's death and resurrection. All of heaven celebrates because of the anticipation that you and I would respond. Your redemption story started long before you ever made a decision. And this morning you might be here have never made that decision. God has been wooing you like a lover. He's been drawing you like a father. Perhaps this morning you would respond to that. You know, John, the writer, goes on in chapter 3, after verses 16 and 17, which we just read. He writes this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. I've been there. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. To all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, they were given the right to become his children. Perhaps you respond to that this morning. As the band comes, they're going to lead us in a song called We Believe. It speaks of the Trinitarian nature of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Perhaps you would respond this morning, and I don't know, maybe you are apart from Christ. You've never made a decision from Christ. This moment is for you. Perhaps once you decided to follow Christ and since have, have not, can I just say the story of redemption has not stopped? 
Dare I say that the redemption story has been an overdrive, drawing and wooing you back? God has not stopped his pursuit, his rescue mission of you and I. Church, in this moment, would you close your eyes and bow your heads, this holy moment. This might be your moment, your salvation moment. I don't know where you are with Christ, whether you've never made a decision to follow him and make him the Lord of your life, let him lead. Or perhaps you've fallen or run away, and this is your moment to come back. As we often do here at Christian Chapel, we give you that moment to make that declaration by a simple raise of a hand. We're not going to point you out, but we're going to pray with you. As most of us in this room, many of us in this room have made the same declaration in one way or another and began our journey with this prayer. If that's you, would you raise your hand, just put it up real high and put it back down. We'll pray with you. Thank you. Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else? Then church, let's pray with all those who raised their hand. And if you didn't raise their hand, perhaps in your heart you'll mean it with us and pray this out loud with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to pay the price for my sin, my rebellion. By his death and his resurrection, you offer me new life. I accept your forgiveness. Help me to live for you in this new life that you offer. In Jesus' name. And Father, I pray your blessing upon your people today as they go. That we would carry the light, the light of the gospel, the light of hope, the light of redemption to us into a broken humanity. Hey, we're so glad you listened in. If you made a decision to follow Christ today or would like more information, please email us at nextsteps at c2church.com or visit us at c2church.com.